Hey, good morning, everybody. It's good to see you. Thank you for the flowers again. Grab your Bibles. Grab your coffee. Get in your chair. Get ready. Here we go. We're going to be in two places today in the Word. First, we're going to start off in Psalm 24 for a time of worship together, and then we'll turn back over to the book of Luke, chapter 7. So Psalm 24 first, and then Luke 7 next. You know, not everybody used to have a Bible in their house. I know many of us have multiple Bibles. The Bible used to be central in the tabernacle, and uh, there would be a reader assigned to read the scripture for that day. I guess if Ted were here right now, I'd ask him to read Psalm 24. He could be our reader today. And in Psalm 24, there's a couple places where it says the word Selah, which means stop, which means pause. So it's an instruction for the reader as they're reading publicly to just stop a minute and give that some space. So I'm going to do that, uh, and uh, let's just read Psalm 24 together as we... uh, Approach God's throne of mercy. All right, here we go. Psalm 24, it says this. The earth is the Lord's and everything in it, the world and all who live in it. For he founded it upon the seas and he established it upon the waters. Who may ascend the hill of the Lord? Who may stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart who does not lift up his soul to an idol or swear by what is false. He will receive blessing from the Lord and vindication from God his Savior. Such is the generation of those who seek him, who seek your face, O God of Jacob. Lift up your heads, O you gates. Be lifted up. You ancient doors, that the king of glory may come in. Who is this king of glory? The Lord, strong and mighty. The Lord, mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O you gates. Lift them up, you ancient doors, that the king of glory may come in. Who is he, this king of glory? The Lord Almighty. He is the king of glory. That's one of my favorite psalms. Like I said before, the word Selah is in that psalm twice. It can mean an instruction to the public reader to pause for a minute, but it also encourages the audience listening to pause and reflect on what was just said. And so I wanted to do that together, to pause and reflect and ponder what the author is telling us. So let's look at it. Verses 1 and 2 is a typical opening uh, statement about God in a psalm. It says, The earth is the Lord's and everything in it, the world and all who live in it. He founded it upon the seas and he established it upon the waters. Basically, everything belongs to God. Everything that we see belongs to God. God decides how things are supposed to go. It all belongs to God. And then it asks the question, who may ascend the hill of the Lord? Who may stand in his holy place? It is he who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to an idol or swear by what is false. 
he will receive blessing from the Lord and vindication from God his Savior. And such is the generation of those who seek him, who seek your face, O God of Jacob. You know, at first glance, it it appears that this is saying that if you have clean hands and if you have a pure heart, if you don't worship idols or swear by what is false, then you will receive blessing and you will be vindicated. But then it says that the ones who actually receive this blessing and vindication are are the ones who seek God's face. So what is this saying? When we stop and think for a minute, Whose hands are clean, really? Whose hearts are always pure? Who always puts their hope and trust in the Lord and never in things made by man? The answer is no one. No one may ascend the hill of the Lord. No one may stand in his holy place. The gates to God's presence has been shut The ancient doors to God's holy place are closed. But the psalm doesn't end there. Enters the king of glory. Lift up your heads, O you gates. Be lifted up, you ancient doors, that the king of glory may come in. Who is this king of glory? The Lord strong and mighty. The Lord mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O you gates. Be lift them up, you ancient doors, that the king of glory may come in. Who is he, this king of glory? The Lord Almighty, he is the king of glory. The king of glory has clean hands. The king of glory has a pure heart. The king's heart is true to God. As he ascends the mount of the Lord, the doors open to him. The ancient doors, the gates of heaven open to us because of the king of glory. So who is this king of glory? The Lord Almighty himself is the king of glory. He is the king of glory who has opened the way for us. This is good news. He did for us what we could never do for ourselves. Praise God. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much that though the way was shut to us, to you, to your holy presence, it is now opened to us because of what you have done for us. Your life, your sacrifice, your resurrection, your call to us to faith, to trust in you, Lord. We can all now enter the holy place because of you, not because of us. And we, we accept that, Lord, and we celebrate that. We praise you for that, that you made the way open to us. Thank you, Lord. It's in your name we pray. Amen. This psalm, Psalm 24, speaks of a generation who seeks the face of God. It's a generation who understands that the way to us, our way to God was shut. It was shut by God, and it has to be opened by God. Their faces were turned to him for the solution to the problem. And those who understand this now turn to God, not to themselves. And as a result of turning to God, we receive blessing and vindication. So now in our passage today in the book of Luke... Luke speaks of a generation who, instead of turning their face to God, they attempt to ascend themselves. They thought they could achieve clean hands of this generation. They thought they could have a pure heart. And as a result, they would become proud and self-righteous 
And Jesus has some strong words for them. So we're in Luke 7, verse 24, and we'll go all the way to verse 35. Luke 7, 24 through 35. Last week, we were in the story of uh, how Jesus was healing people. His fame was spreading throughout all the region. He was raising the dead. He was healing the sick. He was delivering people from demonic and Word about him was spreading, and word got to John, who is now sitting in prison. All this ministry is happening out there with Jesus, and John is sitting here in prison. And he sends two of his friends as messengers to Jesus to ask him, are you the one we should be looking for, or should we look for someone else? And last week, we see that Jesus was quick to encourage him, and he exhorted his friend, and assured him that, yes, he is the one. Look at the evidence for yourself. And he sent the messengers back with this good news. John did his job. Even though he's having a struggle, maybe he's still strong in the faith, and Jesus reassures him. So let's pick up at Luke seven twenty four. So after John's messengers left, Jesus began to speak to the crowd about him. What did you go out into the desert to see? A reed swayed by the wind? If not, what did you go out to see? A man dressed in fine clothes? No, those who wear expensive clothes and indulge in luxury are in palaces. But what did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. This is the one about whom it is written. I will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way before you. I tell you, among those born of women, there is no one greater than John. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. All the people, even the tax collectors, when they heard Jesus' words, acknowledged that God's way was right because they had been baptized by John. But the Pharisees And experts in the law rejected God's purpose for themselves because they had not been baptized by John. To what then can I compare the people of this generation? What are they like? They are like children sitting in the marketplace and calling out to each other. We played the flute for you and you did not dance. We sang a dirge and you did not cry. For John the Baptist came neither eating bread nor drinking wine, and you say, he has a demon. The Son of Man came eating and drinking, and you say, he is a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. But wisdom is proved right by all her children. This is a familiar story for many who have read through the Gospels a few times. It's not uh, as clear as I wish it could be. There's some things in here that are mysterious statements. Why is he saying this now, and what is he talking about? Well, in our story today, the author, Luke, has given us, his audience, the listeners of this story, some cues on how he wants us to unpack what is being said in this scene. So the first thing he does is gives us an Old Testament quote. He gives his, uh, and then in, in verse 29 and 30, maybe in your Bible it has parentheses around it. This is the author 
stepping in as a narrator and giving his commentary on the situation, okay? And then he's also giving us a, back, a bit of a flashback. He's, look, he's getting us to look back to when John was baptizing the people at the Jordan, and he wants us to flash back to that scene and remember because it helps us to understand where the story is going. So we have this Old Testament quote, and it goes like this. First, he starts off in verse 24 and 25. He says, who is John, really? Was he from God or was he not from God? He says, what did you go out into the desert to see? Was he a reed swayed by the wind? Was John some guy just spewing the newest and latest spiritual trend or thought? No. If not, what did you go out to see? Was he a man dressed in fine clothes? No, those who wear expensive clothes and indulge in luxury are in palaces. Was John just doing what he was doing to get wealthy? Was he trying to get rich? Was he doing what he was doing to make money? No. Was he a prophet then? Was he from God? Jesus says, yes, he was from God. He was a prophet, but no ordinary prophet. And he quotes an Old Testament quote. This is the one about whom it is written. I will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way before you. I will send my messenger ahead of you, Messiah, who will prepare your way before you, Messiah. When a New Testament author quotes an Old Testament author, it's a tool, it's a cue. He's giving us a hint to go look at where that quote is from to gain context, because whatever is going on in the Old Testament context can be transferred up here into this New Testament context, okay? So if you look in your margin, you might see that the quote is from the book of Malachi, Malachi 3. And so I did the work for us this week, but when you're on your own reading through the gospel, you make sure that when you see an Old Testament quote, you follow up on it, and you try to listen to what the author is trying to tell us. This is a quote from the book of Malachi, and Malachi ironically means messenger. This was a book written to Israel after the exile. This was after the time of Ezra and Nehemiah. So at this time in the book of Malachi, the temple has been rebuilt, and worship was was ongoing, but God was telling them in that book that their worship was lifeless. Everything had gone flat. What they were doing was just empty ritual. And he also observed, God observed that the peoples uh, doubted God's love because they weren't experiencing blessing like they thought they should be. They were entitled. God also observed that people doubted God's justice. They were saying and questioning them to themselves, how can God be just and good when the world is the way it is? And as he's bringing these observations to the people in Malachi, the people aren't really receiving it. They're getting defensive. And so the quote from Luke is, is from the prophecy brought forth in the midst of all of that empty ritual. It says the messenger will come to prepare the way for Messiah. Messiah would come and and cleanse the people and purify the people. It describes a, a fire, like a purifying fire, a cleansing like that of launderer's soap. 
And then the book of Malachi ends with the promise that one like Moses is going to come. One like Elijah is going to come. And he, he will turn the hearts of the people. And that's how the Old Testament ends. With this idea that one is coming. One like Moses. One like Elijah. And before that one, a messenger will come to prepare the way. And there's a 400 year gap between the Old Testament and the New Testament. 400 years of silence. Where is this one? It was during this 400 years that the Pharisees were formed. And their intent, their purpose, was to make the people faithful to God so that they could once again obtain his favor. They wanted to go back to the days of blessing like in the days of David and Solomon where they were a world power, where the world came to see them. The Pharisees assumed and thought that Messiah would be wearing royal clothing, that the Messiah would conquer Rome like David conquered Israel's enemies in the past. And the Pharisees also thought that God's wrath was coming and his purifying judgment and cleansing was to cleanse all the other nations around them. It was for other people groups, not them. And so Luke begins his gospel with the story of John's birth. John, the one to prepare the way for Messiah. And Jesus says, I tell you, among those born of women, there is no one greater than John. Wow. Yet the one who is the least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. So instead of Messiah, instead of Jesus coming to establish the kingdom of Israel again, he came to establish the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven. So John was the last of the old prophets of the old Israel. He is the hinge from the old to the new. And the least in the kingdom of God in the new is greater than the greatest of the kingdom of old. The new is greater than the old. So then Luke steps in, and he gives a narration, a commentary on the situation. It's like an old Alfred Hitchcock movie where he steps in and says, good evening, and he tells the audience how they're supposed to unpack the situation. He gives a little bit of the background of what's really happening. He gives us the audience understanding of what's really going on. And so his commentary is this. All the people, even the tax collectors, when they heard Jesus' words, acknowledged that God's way was right because they had been baptized by John. As John's message came forth, they responded to it. They agreed with it. But the Pharisees and the experts in the law rejected God's purposes for themselves because they had not been baptized by John. So the narration encourages us to flash back to when John was at the Jordan River baptizing people. It says in Luke 3, just a few chapters back, that John went into all the country around the Jordan preaching a baptism of repentance and the forgiveness of sins. John uh, was baptizing in the Jordan because the Jordan is a threshold for the nation of Israel. It's a threshold into the promised land. They crossed the Jordan into the land of blessing, into the land of promise. Now, John was calling the people back 
to start over with God, to start fresh, to acknowledge their need for forgiveness. And he's warning all the people that the purifying wrath and cleansing fire was for anyone and everyone whose hearts needed it. And the fact is, no matter how devout or religiously sound someone is, everyone needs Messiah's purifying cleansing. And John was warning the people that the coming wrath was going to be for everyone, even Israel. But God's purpose for them was that everyone would realize this and they would eventually receive the Holy Spirit. He says later, In Luke 3, John says, I baptize you with water, but one more powerful than I will come. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat, but burn the chaff. And here the wheat is the righteous. He's going to gather the wheat and bring it into the the barn, but he's going to burn the chaff. He's going to burn the unrepentant the rejectors of God's purpose for them. So what's being said here is that the Pharisees are and the the experts in the law are in danger of being like the people in Malachi. They are very religious. They are going through the motions, but their hearts are far away from God. And on the surface, these Pharisees, these these, uh, experts in the law are are very generous and charitable and very moral people. They are exemplary in many ways. However, in their hearts, they are judgmental and self-righteous. And they did not heed John's warnings. They did not respond with lament when the dirge was being played, nor did they dance when the joyful song was played with Christ. They were numb to both situations, to both people, to both messages. The song of judgment was played. They didn't respond. And the song of grace was played. And they did not respond. It wasn't for them. Why? Because they were still living like their efforts to ascend would make them right with God. It was their will to make them stand in God's holy presence. When that generation read Psalm 24, they see ascension as attainable through discipline. And when they fall short, they double down and they try harder. They say, I have to make my hands clean by being perfectly moral. I have to make my heart pure through religious practices. I have to, I have to, I have to. But only God, only Christ can really do it. They didn't understand that. So God's purpose is that they would feel the weight. God's purpose for us is that we would feel the weight of sin. That we would look into the law and we would realize it is required of us and yet we have broken it. But that we would turn our eyes to God and fall upon his mercy and cast ourselves upon his grace rather than continue to try harder to attain it. Later in the New Testament, Paul comes along, a former Pharisee of the strictest sect. And he says in Galatians 3, what was the purpose of the law then? He says, 
the purpose of the law was to hold us as prisoner until faith should be revealed. The law was put in charge over us. The law was a tutor for us to lead us to Christ, the King of glory, because God had shut the door and only God can open it back up again. Humanity has never been able to make things right with God on their own. The door remained shut, but the door was opened to Christ and all who would follow after him by putting their trust in him. Let's reflect. Do you hear the call to repent and say, I I don't need to? That's not for me. When the song, I am a sinner, plays, and I need to do right for God, do do we look up to heaven for help? Or do we look inward and recommit to trying harder? Do you hear the good news song of grace and feel nothing, feel like it is not for you either? To what then can I compare the people of this generation? What are they like? They are like children sitting in the marketplace calling out to each other. We played the flute for you and you did not dance. We sang a dirge and you did not cry. For John the Baptist came neither eating bread nor drinking wine. He came fasting and you say he's a demon. He has a demon. And the son of man came eating and drinking with this feast and you say, he is a glutton and drunkard. He's not for us because he's a friend of tax collectors and sinners. But wisdom is proved right by all her children. Wisdom wants us to cry at the dirge and the lament. Wisdom wants us to dance also when the joyful song is played too. So which one sounds like life abundant to you? The try harder or the release from prison? Which life you want to live? Which life do you want your children and your grandchildren to live? The life of freedom or the life of bondage? It is true that only those with clean hands and a pure heart, only the righteous may stand in the holy place. It is required, right? But righteousness is not something that we attain. Righteousness is a gift given to us through Jesus It is not something earned. And I know that I'm not saying anything new to many of you. We know this intellectually, but we can still function in our uh, relationship with God as if our righteousness were something earned, as if God's favor were something earned through our rituals or through our good deeds. And I want us to be careful and guard ourselves from that. If your life, if our life, centers on sin management, if our spiritual walk is about sin management, where we focus on things we need to do to make God happy, or we focus on things we're not supposed to do to keep God from getting angry at us, then we are in danger of being like that generation that rejects God's purposes for you. And so next week, in the next story, in the next section of Luke chapter 7, we're going to see this being illustrated. We're going to have a Pharisee, the teacher of the law, and a sinful woman. And they're going to be compared side by side 
as they are with Jesus. We're going to see who Jesus responds to. We're going to see who responds in a favorable way with Jesus. We are going to see that Jesus indeed is a friend of tax collectors and sinners. And that is good news, not a criticism. Let's pray. Father, we just thank you that you have made the way open to us through your son, Jesus Christ. That the penalty for our sin has been paid so that we can walk with you in newness of life, that we may ascend the hill of the Lord, that we may stand in your holy place, not because of what we have done, but because of what you have done. Lord, we do not want to pretend before you or before each other, and we want to be authentic with you, and so we turn our face to you and ask you to cleanse us, ask us, ask you to make us holy again. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. I'll leave you with this benediction from Galatians. It says, Christ has truly set us free. Now make sure that you stay free and don't get tied up again in slavery to the law. Let's go be the church. Ready, set, break.